so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast of the Research Institute of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve here as a senior fellow in Christian ethics. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Adam Groza to talk about his new book that he wrote with J.P. Moreland entitled Unraveling Philosophy from B&H Academic. Today, we discuss how Christians can love God with all of our minds through the study of the riches of philosophy. Adam serves as an associate professor of philosophy and a vice president for enrollment and student services at Gateway Seminary in California. He's a native Californian and has taught philosophy-related classes at a variety of institutions, including California Baptist University, Scarborough College, as well as Korea Baptist Theological Seminary. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Adam, thank you so much for joining us here today on the Digital Public Square. As we dive in, I always love to hear a little bit of an author's background. Uh, Kind of what led you to this point? What kind of piqued your interest in philosophy and why teaching? Why is that something that you felt called into? Yeah. Jason, thanks for having me on the podcast. Great to be with you. You know, for me, the interest in philosophy came when I was uh, attending public university as a new Christian and kind of facing for the first time pushback on my faith. And this kind of underlying assumption in a public university context that being a Christian was irrational or some vestige of your pre-education years, that, that this is something that, you know, this Freudian crutch or something that you were given in your youth that is no longer necessary, but sort of emotionally comforting. And you had to divorce your life of reason and life of education, life of evidence from this private life of faith. And that didn't seem true, but I didn't know why it wasn't true. And so philosophy really was my own exploration into this question of, is the life of faith and the life of reason, are these two separate things? Or are they compatible and do they actually serve the function of the other? So that led me down the road. And then after college, when I was in seminary, I was doing uh, college ministry in Los Angeles. And I began to get questions from other college students who were now just a few years younger than me that reflected my own questions. And that's when I decided I need to do some kind of graduate study in philosophy 
and really go to primary sources and understand philosophy at a deeper level as a service to my ministry of the gospel into the local church. Yeah, I love hearing that kind of background because, at least for me, I became a believer when I was a little bit later in life, about 18, 19 years old. And even through public university, really never thought about much of these questions. Even into seminary, it wasn't something that really plagued me. It wasn't something that I even had a terrible interest in. I was actually kind of bored with philosophy. That's something I think you guys do a really good job is not only an interactive guide with this book, Unraveling Philosophy, but you kind of stay on the outset and uh, often that philosophy is not boring. For me, it kind of felt boring initially. And then it wasn't until later in life where I was actually pressed and kind of against the wall in terms of my faith, maybe similar to some of the questions you were wrestling with, where I was like, man, there has to be more here. And the more I read, the more I was intrigued and kind of kept going down that rabbit hole in some sense. And in many ways, just fell in love with the study of philosophy and particularly with ethics. But I know for a lot of folks, when they think of philosophy, it feels like an incredibly dry and kind of boring subject. Sometimes intro to philosophy classes maybe are not the best. I hope yours are. Um, and I think many and a lot of our seminaries and schools within the Southern Baptist Convention are now. But it can be a pretty dry subject at times where we ask these seemingly exoteric questions like, does this chair exist? Or how can we know that this chair really exists? And those type of things. And it seems like we're kind of straining at gnats and just asking questions for questions sake. And so it feels like a really dry subject that's really abstract and disconnected from life. But one of the things that you all do really well in this volume you co-authored with J.P. Moreland kind of address some of that. So why do you think that attitude is so prevalent, not just in the church, but even kind of in wider society that somehow philosophy is disconnected, abstract and kind of boring in many ways? Well, Jason, it's prevalent because it's true. It is dry and boring in most cases. Your audience is listening and thinking, yeah, I thought it was boring, and let me just affirm them. That's because it was boring. It often is boring. You know, starting with Immanuel Kant in modern, sort of modern philosophy, this era of philosophy that starts, you know, after the Enlightenment, philosophy moves from the church, from the common person to the academy, and it has resulted in a distance from what matters most, which is life and family and church. You know, philosophy doesn't start in the university. It starts with, you know, Aristotle and Plato and Socrates. And these are working men. These are like, you know, Jesus was a laborer, a carpenter. Early philosophers were laborers. Medieval philosophers were churchmen. Many philosophers were attorneys or businessmen or scientists and this kind of thing. And it's only sort of later in the history of philosophy that it becomes an academic discipline. And then within the academy, it becomes this specialized discipline. And then within the specialized discipline in the last 150 years, it's become very isolated. And the result is dry and disconnected and boring. And the point of this book is to wrestle it out of the cold, dead hands of the academy and bring it back into the home and into the church where there is life and meaning because the questions of philosophy have endured because they matter. And that's what we talk about in the book. But they matter in relation to family and life and art and God. And so we, we want to bring it back into those contexts where the vitality and the life of philosophy can return. And so I would affirm the audience that their impressions are true, but they shouldn't write off philosophy. They should just restore it to its original context. Well, kind of, I guess, building off of that question, one of the 
tendencies I see, especially in kind of Bible colleges or seminaries at times is a not maybe a fear of philosophy per se, but a complete kind of avoidance and rejection, especially of studying. It's inherently dangerous. It's it's conceited. It's deceitful. It's something we shouldn't be kind of uh, involved in. Earlier this week, um, in one of my my philosophy classes, we were re- we do a scripture journal um, as part of all of my classes, just kind of a way to center our minds and our hearts as we start our uh, lecture for that day. And we were reading Colossians 2.8. And this is a, a verse that comes to mind pretty regularly for many of my students when they think about philosophy. It says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. I think sometimes a verse like that can be used as almost a bludgeoning tool against just studying or even asking these type of questions that, oh, it's just theology, it's just faith, that's the only thing that matters. But as you guys rightfully do in this volume, kind of peel that back and show what true philosophy is, the idea of kind of loving God with all of our mind, not just with our heart, not just with our actions, not just with our bodies even, but also with our minds. So can you kind of help us to understand what Paul is actually getting at there? It's not an avoidance of philosophy. It's avoidance of a lot of the empty deceit and kind of the vain speculation. But can you kind of unpack that and the the role of philosophy and kind of its relationship with theology? Yeah, there's to be philosophical is to be human. It's to apply logic, the rules of which I think God creates and sustains as he creates and sustains everything that's come into existence. So we, we are born into this world in God's image, and Jesus embodies logic and, and reason. Dallas Willard has this great article. People can Google it. Jesus the Logician. I highly recommend it. Jesus over and over uses logic to engage those he's talking with. So, so Jesus as this picture of full and perfect humanity embodies what we're aimed at, which is to live fully human lives. So to be human is to use our senses and reason together with faith to rightly live lives worshipfully. So it's not to avoid reason, it's to avoid um, what is false. So Paul is warning us against what is false, he's pointing us towards what is true, Christ is the embodiment of what is true. So eventually Christ is the telos of all thinking, rational engagement with the world. So we would say if you're going to pursue truth, you're going to pursue Christ who is the truth. So the, Paul's not warning us against philosophy. He's warning against what is false. And I, I think that, you know, that this idea of philosophy as being dangerous but important, I think is, is accurate. Like, I love the movie A Dead Poet Society. Um, A Dead Poet Society is sort of a great movie where the, the teacher, Keating, he wants his students to engage poetry, but he gets them out of the class. He gets them out of the book and he gets them into life. So that's what this book is aiming to do. I think that, you know, Paul in his engagement with people in Athens, in his engagement with King Agrippa is using reason and logic and argumentation. Jesus does the same, but it's out of the academy in the classroom. And it's in real life engagement with people, which is what we do as fathers and mothers and in whatever business we're in, you know, we're applying reason and evidence to faith in everyday circumstances and that matters to students and and everybody else. Yeah, I know, especially when I teach and kind of introduce students to the concept of metaphysics, uh, there's often such an overlap between a lot of metaphysical concepts as well as theological concepts. 
And it's interesting to notice, you've kind of already mentioned that philosophy in many ways throughout the medieval times was located in the church. Some of the greatest theologians were also some of the greatest philosophers and were some of the greatest metaphysicians in that sense. Can you speak to kind of the way that prior to kind of the modern era, that philosophy and the church were so wedded together that so much of the great philosophy was flowing from the life of the church? Can you speak to that reality a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think you see this in certain individuals, like obviously Aquinas, um, and you see it in movements like the scientific revolution. The scientific revolution is born out of a mathematical revolution, which is born out of an emphasis on education, which is born out of the church. The church wants to promote education. The church wants to promote science. And their basic view is that there is a God. He is a God of order. He established order in the world. And so the church is leading those pursuing education to look for God's order in all aspects of life. And so philosophy is the pursuit of like the order of reason in the pursuit of understanding. And so let me give you a practical example, you know, to a student who says, well, why do I need philosophy? Okay, well, what do you care about? Well, I care about social justice. Okay, well, what's justice? I mean, you better know what justice is if you're going to want to pursue social justice. If, if it matters to you that the person you're dating says they love you, it matters to you what love is. And, and philosophy, you know, all goes back to Plato, who wasn't a Christian, but he's asking questions that matter to Christians, and he believes in things like the soul. So one of the benefits of studying the history of philosophy, whether it's in the medieval period where the church is dominant or in you know ancient Greece where the church isn't even a factor, is that people are asking questions that we're asking, and they believe in things that often people today think you're a fool for believing. For instance, the average college student might be made fun of for saying, I believe I have an immaterial substance called a soul. And the professor might make fun of that. But the student should be able to say, you know, Plato believed that too. And he wasn't stupid, so it's not stupid to believe in a soul. Maybe there's good reasons to believe in a soul. Maybe those good reasons don't actually need the Bible. They're supported by the Bible, but even apart from the Bible, there are good reasons to believe in the soul. So those doing philosophy in the Middle Ages, they understood that faith and reason supported one another, and that's how they approached things. And that's important for young Christians to know. There's a lot of encouragement and support in the study of the history of philosophy. So when you're teaching philosophy and even kind of what you guys do here, you kind of open it up to say, you know, philosophy is not really, it, it can be boring, but it doesn't have to be boring. And then you kind of turn to this verse that many listeners of the podcast will be very familiar with. Uh, we talk about it almost, it seems like almost every week now in Matthew 22 verses 37 to 39, where we read that the great commandment is to love the Lord your God with of your heart, with all of your soul and with all of your mind. That idea of loving God with our mind kind of plays off this idea that you've been kind of speaking to already about the role of faith and reason that's so often pitted against one another. It reminds me of the book uh, that Alvin Plantico wrote, Where the Conflict Really Lies. He, he talks about the relationship. It's not faith and science. It's actually naturalism and science uh, that where the conflict really lies, that faith and reason, faith and science actually very much are wedded together especially getting into that idea that God created the world in an orderly fashion, not out of chaos, that there are laws of nature and science. Can you kind of unpack that a little bit? Because I think when we hear that, that there's no conflict between faith and reason, uh, many people are like, yes, I totally understand that. But then when you get into 
quote the real world or you're sitting across the co- uh, you know at a coffee shop with your friend and they kind of press you on that as a christian at times it can feel like faith and reason don't coincide or that somehow they're distinct in that sense and that's so much of what we're taught today especially even public universities even where i went that somehow faith isn't really welcomed at the table that we just need to focus on reason rationality scientific facts can you help us to understand and maybe even as Christians equip us to be able to start that conversation with those around us? Yeah, if, if the world is designed by God, then we would expect it to reflect God's order and follow rules and, and rules of science, uh, rules of logic. And, and that's what we, what we find. I mean, you can't even argue against rules of logic without assuming rules of logic. Um, like you can't say there's no such thing as truth without making a truth claim. So it's unavoidable that there is in the universe, there are these unavoidable rules of logic. Well, where would they come from? They wouldn't come from the universe. Um, There's nothing about survival or randomness or natural selection or any of these sort of naturalistic principles that would lead us to a world with these unavoidable, undeniable rules of logic. So the the universe uh, appears to have these features that make sense if it's created by God. Those in the scientific revolution, you know, whether it's Newton or Bacon, these are people of deep faith that thought that believing in God made you a better scientist and it made sense of science. There's a reason, Jason, that Christians should understand the scientific revolution happens in a particularly Christian context and not in pagan context. Because if you're in a pagan context, you don't study a tree. You worship a tree because the tree is endowed with the spirits of your ancestors. So you you worship the tree. Or if you're in a purely naturalistic environment, you disregard the tree. It's of no value. But if but a Christian worldview provides a unique foundation for science because the tree is good. It points to God, but it is not God. So you can study it because you assume that by studying tree, you're going to learn some truth about the world because that's how God created the world but the tree is not itself God. So good, but not God, this particularly Christian approach to the environment leads to the scientific revolution. And so modern science owes its existence to Christianity, but then turns around and tells Christians that Christianity is somehow hostile to the pursuit of science, which is just patently false historically and empirically. So Christians need to know that. And so it's the world of reason is the world we'd expect if God created it. And the world of science is what we would expect if creation is true, which again, I think is just another way that we love God with our mind by applying the truth of the Bible, the truth of theology to our pursuit and engagement of, um, you know, every range of academic discipline. And I, I love kind of the follow-up to that. In many ways, I talk about the nature of loving, loving one another or loving the other, as Carl F. H. Henry once said. Um, is the sum of the Christian ethic. And in many ways, even kind of following off that idea of loving God with our mind and asking those type of big questions is part of loving our neighbor as ourself is navigating and asking those type of questions and even understanding what people are saying. And that's one of the things that I I love about the study of philosophy is that not only allows us to dig deep into the wells of who God is and how he created the world, but it also gives us that common language to be able to engage people of no faith or different faiths on some of these vitally important questions and understanding them on their terms. And as you guys introduce kind of 
the nature of philosophy is you start to unravel this in terms of this guide, you introduce four main branches of philosophy. Now, I know kind of depending on the philosopher, sometimes there are other branches, but you all identify four main branches, including metaphysics, epistemology, ethics, as well as aesthetics, and how show how they connect to some of the most basic questions. Can you give listeners, I mean, not a, a lecture per se on each of those. Obviously, we could speak a whole, you know, multiple podcasts on just one little aspect of something like epistemology. But in, in general, what are these terms? Because I think sometimes we get lost in the terminology, not realizing that these are sometimes fancy words describing very normal, common questions that we ask. What are some of the questions that we ask in these kind of branches of philosophy? And how does that connect in many ways to the big questions of life that we're all asking? Yeah, that's a really good question. These branches can can be intimidating, but they're really not. Take, for instance, ethics. You know, ethics is the question of how, how should we live? And it asks questions at different levels, but is there such a thing as, as right and wrong? Is there something that is morally true? Are there objective moral facts? Or is morality just about what works for society? And, and so these kinds of questions matter. I, I was recently listening to something on NPR that was about Helen Keller. And, you know, Helen Keller is this really interesting figure that is surprisingly ends up in some dark places in terms of her, her, her views of morality. So Christians value human life because in the study of ethics, humans are made in God's image. And so as image bears, there's inherent intrinsic value to humans. Well, you know, in the 19th and 20th century, in philosophy, there's this view called utilitarianism, which is a view that basically says that human value is based on utility. In other words, humans are valuable if they're of some, if they can do something for society. So strangely enough, Helen Keller, who overcomes these, these very difficult early challenges to her own development, her academic and intellectual development, ends up advocating that children born with severe disabilities should be allowed to die. She argues for what we call eugenics because she believes that children have no value if they have no utility to society. Now, your Christian listeners will be appalled at this. They'll be shocked at this. But you would be shocked if you're a Christian and you believe that morality is based on the character and commands of God, that somehow grounded in God, and that human value is based not on utility, but upon the image of God given to each person. But if you go the route of utilitarianism, as Helen Keller did, regardless of her personal experiences, she ends up advocating that human value is based on utility. So your listener who's hearing the word ethics and moral philosophy, these sound like big concepts detached from life, but they're really not. They're deeply connected to everyday issues, even our own value as human beings. And they present sort of a fork in the road for society. So if we want to love our neighbor, then we want to value our neighbor. And if we want to value our neighbor, we want to explain why they have value. So philosophy in this one branch, the branch of ethics, provides for society value of the neighbor, which supports love of the neighbor, which, of course, as Christians, you know, is one of the things God commands. Love God and love your neighbor. So kind of building off that, I mean, one of the things you all do in this volume is kind of frame up some of these big questions. And I think we would probably both agree. I mean, you even uh, just recently wrote something for the ERLC on gender and sexuality. I mean, we have this question with AI and technology. We have this question in terms of the pro-life movement, justice movement, that question of like, what does it mean to be human? 
Can you show, like, obviously that's a deeply anthropological question, but it also has connections into metaphysics and epistemology and obviously what you just spoke of, of connections to ethics. How does a question like that, that I believe is really the central question of our day, that people are asking across society in different contexts, and they have very different answers to that of what it means to be human, how that's a deeply philosophical as well as theological question. Like, how does that connect to some of these other branches of philosophy when we ask a question like, what does it mean to be human? Yeah, I mean, it really applies in so many ways, but the average person, you know, doesn't doesn't know the term metaphysics, but they know that there are things about them that are private. Okay, let's just start there. There are things about you that are private. You have thoughts that are private. Like if you put yourself under every scan that science has to offer, those scans could not read your deep private thoughts because those deep private thoughts, they use your physical brain, but they reside in your immaterial soul, which is what you are as your body changes from the beginning of your life in the womb to the end of your life, you would be unrecognizable. If I had a picture of Jason, you know, in, 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 in utero and a picture of Jason, you know, if you lived a long life, 99 years old in some retirement home, right? I could not connect the two, but you are the same person. Well, what is enduring about you? It's your soul. What is that private seat of your thoughts that no one can access? It's your soul. Um, and so humans from really the beginning of philosophy on through today have tended to believe that humans have a soul. And that's what makes us different from a machine that has high learning capacities and can outthink us and outrespond. And as artificial intelligence makes these incredible cognitive advances, where they are different is that we would say they don't have this, these features of the soul. Um, and you can tease that out in different ways. But we're at a moment in our society where it really does matter to people that they are aware that there is something more about them to their body so that as their body changes, they understand that they are the same person, that, that their physical body is changing, but they're the same person. And this has, I mean, you, you, you ask the question about how this applies to different fields. Like think about criminal justice. Like you put somebody in prison for committing a crime at 23 and at 43, they're still in prison. And they might say, well, I'm a different person. Well, you're, you've changed as a person, but you're the same person. You're the same person because you're the same soul. And if you're not the same soul, then how do we put someone in prison for more than, you know, however many years that it takes your physical components to change out, you know, your cellular regeneration or whatever. So our entire penal system is predicated upon the idea that there is this durability of self and the durability of self is grounded in the soul. So whether you're a police officer that's arresting people or you're watching the news or you're just dealing with your own changes and you're, you're reflecting upon the ways in which you've changed over the years, well, you have changed. The word you, I have changed, picks out something that has changed but remains the same, and that's the soul. So all of our reflection, all of our journaling, as you mentioned, all of our, you know, really society re societal reflections on individual responsibility are kind of built upon this foundation that humans are not just a not just a body, you know, but we're a soul that will never die. And that gets into eternity. So it is important that Christians understand and at least think about some of these things and how it relates to their own lives, their own engagement with the world, and the, the presentation of the gospel, because the presentation of gospel has to do with a life beyond the physical life, a life beyond the grave. 
Uh, one of the chapters of the book that I find uh, really helpful is when you all cover the question of how to win an argument the right way. And obviously, you're kind of getting into this idea of logic. You've kind of brought that up already in terms of the logical nature, uh, the ordering of the universe, the way God created things to work, and that there's an order to things. But in terms of like argumentation, I think sometimes we, without knowing often, we may fall into circular reasoning or these ad hominem attacks. And sometimes these this language is thrown out. And, you know, a lot of listeners may not have formal logic training per se, but this is a helpful chapter kind of introducing some of that. So when we talk about engaging in, quote, argument, I think that can at times come across in a negative kind of confrontational way, but even in just informed debate or having conversations with folks around us who disagree with us, how can we employ like that language of logic in navigating a lot of the big questions that we're asking even now? And what are some of the common pitfalls that we should seek to avoid as Christians when we engage in logical argumentation? Well, that's a really good question. Uh, I do realize that there's people that hear the word, you know, argue, and they think, fight. They think, uh, you know, something that's harmful and hurtful, but I want, I, I would, let me, let me use a different word, Jason. Let me use the word persuasion, persuasion, because, you know, your listeners will know that Paul, you know, reasons in the synagogue for days, for weeks and evangelism itself. J. Max Stiles has this great book on evangelism called evangelism, how the whole church speaks about Jesus in which he defines evangelism as teaching the gospel to persuade. You know, I mentioned Paul with King Agrippa. Agrippa says, you, you almost persuaded me, Paul. Maybe the saddest words in the Bible, almost persuaded. Whereas Paul says, I am persuaded in different places. But in his interaction with Agrippa, he says, I'm persuaded. So, so Agrippa wasn't persuaded. Paul is persuaded. Well, what is persuasion? Persuasion is the evidence in the physical world, the evidence in the world of logic and reason to a, a tipping point of decision, Okay. And look, this can be about mundane things like, hey, where should we go to lunch? Let's try this restaurant. I hear it's not good. Well, though, you know, I, I, I hear it's not good too, but I have this one friend that's really good at restaurants and he says it's good. So you're balancing this one trusted testimony of a friend against all these untrusted testimonies of all these other people on Yelp. So you're just using reason and evidence to make an informed decision. That's trivial. But there are big, there are big questions about life that rest upon the same type of reason and argumentation, the pitfalls of which are our refusal to, to consider, you know, evidence. And so if we're, if we're closed off to evidence, that would violate kind of these laws of reason. Or if we dismiss things because of their origin, you know, so if somebody says, well, you know, I don't believe in Christianity because Christianity, you know, um, has this negative history at this particular time and place. So no matter what time and place you snapshot Christianity, there's something that's not good because we're still sinners and, and we, we sin. So, but to dismiss the claims of Christ based upon the faults of his disciples would be a violation of the laws of logic, as it would be to dismiss the findings of science because of the, the moral faults and failures of science. I mentioned eugenics and the develop of an atomic weaponry to, you know, to kill you know, thousands and millions of people. So we don't dismiss the advancements of science for the faults of scientists. We shouldn't dismiss the claims of Christianity for the faults of those who proclaim it. So these sort of applications, consistent applications of the laws of logic, you know, there's these terms that we give in the book, but they're actually very practical. But they call us to love someone enough 
to do what we want, which is we want people to seriously consider what we have to say. What that requires is that we owe it to others to seriously consider what they have to say as well. I often talk about, and I've written about before, of one of the most loving things we can do in the, we'll just say persuasion. I think I like that language a little bit better when we're seeking to persuade is just understanding the terms that people use. Sometimes it's one of the fascinating things is just defining what you mean when you say something like love. I tell that to my students all the time, you know, the idea of we're to love the Lord our God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbors ourselves is very compelling. It's obviously Jesus's own words. That's in many ways the summation of the entirety of the Christian life. And yet today the word love means something very different in our modern context. And so even just defining saying, what do you mean by that? When you use the language of justice or love or you know a host of different things saying, what do you actually mean by that? Or when you say something is good, one of my favorite exercises with students is to introduce the concepts of meta-ethics with my students and say, when I say abortion is wrong, what am I actually saying? And they're like, well, if it's just obviously wrong, it's objectively wrong, it's against God's commands or whatever. And you're like, yes, but you're operating out of a particular concept of what wrong means and the language of morals and what we mean and what the use of language in that context is. And so then I introduce them to what other people mean when they say, if they said abortion was wrong, what they may be seeking to communicate. So even just defining our terms is a very philosophical pursuit in some sense, and also a way that we can tangibly love our neighbor as ourself by seeking to understand them and to seek to persuade them in that sense. Years ago, I was at a conference and it was a, I was kind of the odd man out. I was the philosopher ethicist in the room. Um, and there were lots of scientists, there were lots of mathematicians and I felt very, I felt there's not many rooms that I walk into and I'm like, I have no idea what's going on here. And they started speaking, but one of the speakers got up and he said, uh, he started getting into a philosophy of math. And I guess I always knew that was something that could be studied, but I had never heard anyone speak to it. And my whole mind, I was like, wow, this is incredible. And I think for a lot of listeners, when they think of philosophy, they have a very narrow view. But in really, in reality, whether it's math, whether it's science, whether it's business or medicine or teaching, there can be a philosophy of these things. I wanted to see if you could kind of unpack that a little bit to show not just the connectivity of philosophy to all of life, but even some of our particular interests. Like my wife is a former elementary school teacher. There's a philosophy of teaching or someone who listens to the podcast who really loves math. There's actually a philosophy of math. Can you unpack that a little bit and show kind of the holistic nature of studying philosophy? Yeah, I, I, you you mentioned a great example of the, these different areas of, of philosophy. And one of the things I love about philosophy is you can be philosophical about anything. In fact, some of the best examples, I started this podcast by talking about how we need to bring philosophy out of the academy and back into everyday life. Some of the best examples of philosophers in everyday life in pop culture like think Andy Griffith. Like Andy Griffith is a sage, wise character. He's philosophical, right? Think Crush in Finding Nemo, right? The turtle who provides this insight and this wisdom, all right? That's philosophy. Think Doc in Cars. That's philosophical. But this really is practical stuff. Let's say you're around the table with your kids and you pose a question. You say, hey, kids, what do you think is the best sports movie? Everybody, all your listeners, have liked some sports movie. Everybody likes sports movie. But the question is, 
what's a sports movie? So if you ask me what the best sports movie is, I'll tell you exactly what I think it is. I think it's The Karate Kid, man. I think The Karate Kid is the best sports movie. Now, you might be thinking, I don't think that's a sports movie, which is to your point, Jason, the point you're raising. You have to first ask a question. What do you mean by a sports movie? So Searching for Bobby Fischer is a wonderful movie about chess. Is chess a sport? Is tournament karate a sport? These are the kinds of questions that we ask, which is a lot of fun. But our kids are going to say to us, Dad, can I go see that movie? And we're going to say, well, is it a good movie? What is a good movie? Is a good movie just something that's enjoyable? Or is there something about the movie? Is there some feature of goodness within the movie that we're picking out? Because it could be that you go to a movie and it wins awards and it's enjoyable in a sense, but it could be a bad movie if the movie lies to you. If the movie presents a picture of human happiness that's deceptive and harmful, it can be you know, you can appreciate it in terms of its cinematography, in terms of its soundtrack and its lighting and its acting, but come to the conclusion that for all its parts, it's a bad movie because it paints this picture of reality that's really, really harmful. So this has to do with sports. It has to do with television and movies. And it has to do with all kinds of just everyday practical stuff that, you know, as parents, we want to help our kids think through as pastors, we want to show the relevance of living in God's world and asking questions. And as you say, loving God with all your mind isn't just about, you know, solemn contemplation. It's about fun conversation that shows people that following Christ leads to a, leads to human flourishing. It, it leads to an enduring happiness of the soul, which is really what philosophy is about. It's about how do we experience deep, soul happiness that lasts for eternity. And I think everybody can get on board with that. Obviously, there's so much more that we could and maybe even should kind of unpack here in terms of kind of introducing philosophy and kind of unraveling it and maybe even pulling it back out of the academy, as you rightfully put. Um, there's so much. But one of the things that we try to do here at the end of a podcast uh, is to give some folks some next steps. There may be a question, an idea, something that you've mentioned uh, that's intriguing and somebody saying, hey, what do I do next? Obviously, we want folks to pick up this new volume, Unraveling Philosophy, an interactive guide uh, that you wrote, co-wrote with J.P. Moreland from BH Academic. We'll have a link to that in the show notes for folks to grab a copy of. But I want to kind of end on some next resources in some sense. Obviously, there are a lot of intro to philosophy books. There are a plethora of philosophy books. I was actually just in Barnes & Noble yesterday uh, here in Louisville and was looking, and there's just a host of different books and a host of different figures, some of which are very popular, some of which are very obscure or seemingly obscure to many of us. But when people are thinking about some primary sources, that's something I always encourage my students to do is go read people in their own words. Don't just read their modern interpreters. That's a something that C.S. Lewis pointed out years ago that's very helpful because often folks like Plato that you mentioned, if you go read Plato in his own words, it's actually often a lot clearer and more compelling than just reading somebody's interpretation thereof. Go back and read them in their own words and understand there's a reason they're classics. So with that being said, what are some of the next steps? If someone's kind of introducing or being, maybe they've had an intro class, but it wasn't maybe overly compelling, but where would you say, where do they want to go next? Are there a couple primary sources or primary text or primary philosophers that you would encourage say, hey, this is a good collection or a good place to start if you want to continue down this path a little bit with philosophical inquiry? 
Yeah, I'm, I love that question because it is so true that we as Christians need to spend some time in original text and in text by people who are thinking apart from a Christian worldview for a number of reasons. So Plato, you know, Whitehead famously says that, you know, that, that all philosophy is footnotes to Plato. So start with Plato. I would say if you want to read, you know, The Republic is good. It's long, it's dense, but you don't even have to do that. There's this website maybe some of your listeners might have heard of. It's called YouTube. And if you go to YouTube and if you type in Laches, L-A-C-H-E-S, that's one of Plato's dialogues. And there's like a dramatic uh, reenactment of one of his dialogues because dialogues are just conversations, okay? So who likes to read a conversation? That's like reading Shakespeare. Shakespeare's not written to be read. He's written to be perform. So Plato, Platonic Dialogues, um, are conversations. You can watch one of them, Lachis, on YouTube, and it's about courage. What is courage? And so that gives you a wonderful, it's like five minutes long, snapshot of what a philosophical dialogue looks like in the pursuit of truth from a non-Christian perspective, but from which Christians we would totally agree with. Um, I, I think Augustine is really helpful. Uh, confessions, is very spiritual and devotional and also philosophical. So right now there's this big debate about gender and sexuality. And one of the things that I love about philosophy and sticks with this idea of getting it out of the academy is that philosophy crosses all subjects. And like in the gender and sexuality discussion, you know, there's these wonderful books that have been written like Camille Paglia's Sexual Personae, which is just, I think, a, a classic text on the distinctions of gender from a non-Christian perspective. So even if you reject Christianity, if you reject the Bible, is there anything just in the natural world that leads us to suggest that there are these strong objective distinctions between, between genders and, and where genders correspond to sexuality? And the answer is yes. Camille Pagli writes this book published by Yale University Press, uh, Sexual Personae. You can listen to it on audio. Um, not a Christian book, you know, not probably for with kids in the car, but it is helpful to understand that we as Christians and arguing for biblical truth, even without referencing the Bible, are appealing to the world of reality. So Plato, Augustine, I would also say, you know, Tim Keller, what a treasure, the reason for God, I think, I mean, I know a lot of people re recommend mere Christianity. I don't think mere Christianity is nearly accessible in 2023 as it was in like 1955 or whenever it came out. So I would highly recommend The Reason for God. I, I think it is sort of a modern classic textbook of um, just a general faith and philosophy, reason and faith approach to loving God with all your mind. Well, for listeners' sake, we'll make sure to include all of those in the links to the show notes. So make sure to check those out. But Adam, I really appreciate not only the way you approach this, this has been a really fun conversation, but I also really appreciate your ministry there at Gateway Seminary. I'm really grateful for the ways that you serve the church, the ways that you seek to equip the church. And I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us here today on the Digital Public Square. Thanks for having me, Jason. It's been a privilege. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, connect with Dr. Groza and learn more about his new book that he co-wrote with J.P. Moreland, Unraveling Philosophy, as well as the recommended resources we talked about in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the weekly tech email briefing that comes out each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology today, as well as life in the public square. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech.
The Digital Public Square is a production of the Research Institute at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is produced and hosted by Jason Thacker. Production assistance is provided by Caden Christian and technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you and I hope you have a great week.